0: Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Morning, everybody. Got a Bible. You can turn to John chapter 12. If you don't have one uh, just outside the doors, our ushers would be happy to... uh, uh, lend you one, and if you don't own a Bible, you can keep it. It's our gift to you. We are quite content to give Bibles away. If you don't have one, take it with you. It's yours. Um, if you have an app, uh, you can turn to that. Scroll to that. Stay off the Angry Birds. Open the Bible app. All right, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, now uh, we are going to pick up where we left off in, in John chapter twelve from last week. So uh, let me just read the first couple of verses. We're going to dive straight in. It says in verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I'm going to skip down to verse 18 for... um, Uh, the sake of of, uh, the the, the first piece I'm going to share here. In verse 18, it says, The reason why the crowd went to meet Jesus was that they heard he had done this sign. That's raised Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, What's going on here is that we saw in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 that the Passover is approaching, and so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, unbeknownst to all of those around him, including his disciples. Jesus was going to die there um, over Passover, which is extremely significant. But what's going on in the crowd is that many of them are moving, many of the Jews are moving away from the religion practiced by the authorities and are moving towards genuine trust in Jesus Christ. So that's taking place. And when it says that a crowd was gathering around, it means a crowd. Josephus, Josephus uh, a Jewish historian, um, around the time of Jesus, slightly after, actually wrote that um, one year he, uh, 2.7 million Jews gathered from surrounding areas, gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover at a later date. So just to give you a sense of crowd numbers, um, 2.7 million, roughly that, were gathering in Jerusalem at this time, and crowds were flocking to see Jesus here. And so the, the numbers, in all likelihood, are astronomical beyond what we often think But what's going on here, uh, this first focus here, is that the chief priests not only wanted Jesus dead, which they've for a while we've seen in John's gospel, they want him dead. They want to do away with Jesus. But they now not only want to do away with Jesus, they want to do away with Lazarus as well because they want to get rid of all the evidence. Jesus came proclaiming that he was the resurrection and the life, and then he raised a guy back to life. And so the people are are starting to follow Jesus. But what the chief priests are seeing is their power, their position, everything they hold dear is at stake. And so they're not even really giving the time of day to the, the works and the words of Jesus. All of their efforts, all of their, um, their actions and their words are centered around trying to do away with Jesus so they can keep what they have. Now, it's, it's no irony that the Passover is approaching because um, the Passover, the first one that existed in Egypt, when God let his people go out of Egypt from slavery to freedom, uh, many of the things happening there are happening here again. Let me explain some of them to you. In Egypt, at the very first Passover, there was opposition from the Pharaoh. Here, In this context, at this time, the opposition is from the chief priests, from the religious leaders of the day. Just like in Exodus, their hearts are hardened despite the signs and wonders taking place right before their eyes. They want Jesus and Lazarus killed because Jesus is gaining such a following, they fear their lofty positions are at stake, like I said. And like the first Passover, blood would be shed again this time not lamb's blood, so that people wouldn't die. Jesus, the Son of God, would die so that others would not have to. The first point I want to make this morning is this, and it has to do with when the cost of discipleship seems too great. See, the religious leaders seem to give not much weight to what Jesus was actually saying and what he was actually doing. The cost in their minds of following Jesus were to leave everything they held dear. And in their minds, to follow Jesus was not worth all that they would lose. They'd have to give up too much to follow Jesus in their minds. And so, contrary to all the evidence, they opposed him. In their minds, to follow Jesus would cost them too much. Now, I don't want to pretend for even a moment that to give your life to Jesus, to surrender your life to him, to become a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, I don't want to pretend for a minute that it won't cost you because it will. And if someone has pitched you in the church that to follow Jesus, it means that all will go well. I am sorry about that. It's just not true. In fact, every time we baptize people here who want to take this like, faithful step in their Christian walk, we actually pray a ton for those that are about to get baptized, and we often tell them, just so you know, things are probably going to be pretty terrible in the couple of weeks around this. It just always seems to be the way it goes. Because you will be tested. You know, like, there, is, there, there is a force in Satan and his minions that don't want you to grow in Jesus. They, they don't want you to take steps of faith in Jesus Christ. And life will get hard. Life will get difficult. Things will, you'll have more arguments with your spouse if you're married around the times you're taking steps of faith. Saturday nights for me. Uh, so, um, like, that, that's, that's just normal. To, to follow Christ is not to go an easy road. And to, you're sold a bill of goods that is false if you hear that if I follow Jesus... Life will be bliss. Things will go well. To become a Christian is certainly to pay a cost, to pay a price. It is costly, but to become a Christian is also to follow Jesus who paid a a greater price than you ever will to follow him. And that price that he paid cost him absolutely everything. So even in you, maybe having to give up everything to follow Jesus, in comparison to the everything that Jesus gave up to purchase you so that you could follow him because he gave up his very life. God the Father gave up his only son so that we may receive more than we could ever have imagined. Something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died during World War II because he was a German pastor theologian who opposed the Nazi regime And days before um, the war ended, he was executed in a concentration camp. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he paid a price. And he talked about costly grace in his book and said this, costly grace is the gospel It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it costs. it's costly because it costs God the life of his Son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God paid the ultimate price by sending His Son, sending His Son to show us the way to the Father and to pay the penalty for our sin, to die the death we deserve so that we could be known and saved by God. And yet, this is common for us. The chief priests, the religious leaders, they're not alone. They're not the only people in history that took a look at Christianity, took a look at Jesus and said, no, it would cost me too much. The same continues to happen. Today, it happens now. It exists. This is the same challenge we are faced with. Maybe, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a couple of examples, but but they, they're only the, the tip of the iceberg. There are so many things that, that keep people from Jesus when they when they start to count the cost, and it seems too great. I'll give a couple in a moment, but maybe you, before you gave your life to Christ, are able to reflect back and recall what it was that you looked in at Christianity, at following Jesus, and said, well, it would cost me that, or I'd have to give up this, or the, the price would be this. Maybe you recall that, or maybe you talk with friends or friends family that you have who aren't followers of Jesus and from their perspective as they look at the Christian life, they say, well, I'd have to give up this or it would cost me that. A couple that come to mind in in my mind, especially for young people, are the ideas of partying and getting drunk and and the whole idea of a sexual ethic, like the, the idea that all of that would have to change if they gave their lives to Jesus. In my young adult years, these were huge challenges, Right, I, I saw that to follow Jesus is to turn from these things that are so common and so popular. Right, in for for young people especially, but for all. And um, if the first thing I want to say is this: that people don't actually need to clean up their lives enough to follow Jesus. Um, they can come as messy as there are people on the planet. It's encountering a gospel so beautiful that compels you to it, that you give your life to it, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the one who has surrendered their life to Christ will spend the rest of their life being sanctified, in other words, doing away with the sin in us. And that's, that takes time. Our job in the church is not to point people to, um, to looking good before being good. Right. If, if Jesus didn't approach people with grace first and, they, and then at the very end say, now go and sin no more, they never would have come. So what Jesus does is offer grace so profound, so beautiful, that people are compelled by it. And from there, as they go about, the beginnings of the Christian life begin to discover what it is. And yet, I want to, I want to say this at this moment, that, that for those looking in at Christianity, they'll say, it will cost me too much because of these things. But let's talk about sexual ethic for a bit. Let's talk about sex. Some of you are like, all right. And others of you are like, really? We, you do this in church? You talk about sex? Well, God made it. He made it great. And so, of all people, we should talk about it. Um... But in regards to sex, in our culture, in our time, is that for many, it is one of the key pieces in our lives that, that give us a sense of self-worth. So there are, are, are many people who are very free sexually, and one of the ways they feel um, good about themselves is if there's some guy or some girl pursuing them, wanting them, showing an interest in them, showing them that they're special, right? That, that there's a, that it, it builds up self-esteem to be desired, by others. So there's this sense of self-worth. And so to take that away, to become a Christian and to be a prude in their mind, right, is to, where will I find my fulfillment? Where will I find my sense of self-worth? But the reality about a promiscuous life, about sex outside of marriage, is that it doesn't lead to flourishing. What actually happens is that that feeling of being pursued and value and self-worth is actually short-lived in that context and actually leaves you feeling um, worse about yourself after you realize the person who is pursuing you is actually just for their own selfish gratification, wanting something from you, and then they leave, and you are left with, for a moment, you felt wanted, and after you feel worse than you did before you were pursued. The gospel doesn't work that way in the life of somebody who would have to give up sexual promiscuity to follow Jesus. See, gospel puts your worth and identity in Christ. You're his. You are loved fully and completely in Christ, and he won't ever let you down. It doesn't take from you. The gospel doesn't do that. It actually provides for you. And so what, what, what's believed to be something you'd have to give up is actually you're discovering in the gospel something far greater. The same can be said about partying, right? Drunkenness, not just occasional drunkenness, but the routine of weekend partying and getting drunk and all that kind of thing. Very popular, right, among young people. And, of course, leads to alcoholism for many people and all that kind of thing. There are many that turn to the bottle, turn to alcohol. What? Why? Because it's a numbing agent, (laughs) Because when you can keep going back to drinking a lot, well, in that moment, you feel good. In that moment, your inhibitions are lifted and you say what you really think. And that feels good for a moment. And you're more fun then, right? Then people really enjoy me when I have lots of drinks, right? Or you have funny stories in your mind. When, and you t- take all of that away, all of your weekend socializing away to follow Jesus. Well, that seems like too great a cost. But like I said, getting drunk regularly, there's just, it, it, what it's doing in your life is it's, it's this numbing agent. This numbing agent, it's temporary, it wears off. Not the gospel. See, the gospel doesn't merely numb and wear off, but it actually invades your life and it heals and it satisfies. So you don't need a temporary fix to make you feel okay. The gospel makes you whole and satisfies deeply I was, I I saw a headline from like a satirical uh, Christian website the other day that uh, something about surgeons try to fill God-shaped hole in patients' life. Uh, there's this idea that like, there's, they tried to fill it with all kinds of things. It just wouldn't do it other than the gospel. And it was a pretty funny play on that. But the reality is this, is that these things that we think are, are such great obstacles that oh, I'll have to give up too much to follow Jesus, as the religious leaders thought. Their identity, who they are, all that they've invested in, how they're known. If, if that were to be messed with, who would I be? And I don't think following Jesus is worth it. Look, I want to say again, coming to Jesus will cost you absolutely. But it will also rescue you and save you and transform you. In Matthew chapter 13, there's a great picture of this. Jesus tells a story, a parable, about this man who was working in a field. And as he's Working in this field, he comes across a treasure. There has been a treasure hidden in this field, and he finds it. And this treasure so astounds him that he just buries it, takes off, sells everything he's got, and buys the field. He buys the field so that he can get this treasure for himself. And the whole point of the story is that the treasure he has found in the parable that Jesus tells is the kingdom of God the gospel. He has found Jesus for himself and discovered the beauty, the stunning gospel, and he's so blown away by it, he would give up all in a heartbeat to buy the field. The gospel is that good, and Jesus is promising us that. If you think there are these things that you will lose out on in order to follow Jesus, I'm sorry, but you are wrong. Jesus will satisfy those who Things that you're desiring in your life far greater than you ever could have imagined. Coming to Jesus will cost you, but it will rescue you, save you, and transform you. The gospel is not too costly to those who truly discover it. It's worth giving up everything for. If you are considering Jesus here this morning, if you come with a friend or come with family or just walk through our doors, we're so glad you came. And we invite you to consider Jesus. Second part, verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it. Just as it is written, and now he quotes the Old Testament prophecy, for not... Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What they're doing here is they're reciting something called the Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118 were normally recited during the festival of booths, or also known as the festival of tabernacles. Um, It was the time when they would remember all the provisions of God in the wilderness. And, um, and so that this was very common because this number of Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, reminisce God's uh, rescue and provision um, in the Exodus. And so that was common, but it also became more broadly used even during the time of the Passover But here's the part about palm branches as well. I I say all that because they're quoting Psalm 118 verse 25 here where they say, give salvation now, Hosanna. Give salvation now, save us we pray. That's the meaning of Hosanna. And it had come to be this term of enthusiastic praise. The reason is because from about two centuries earlier than Jesus at this point, palm branches had already become a national symbol. When a guy named Simon the Maccabee, when Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, he was met with music, fanfare, and the waving of palm branches. Later, they were able to not just get um, the Syrians from the, the Temple Mount area, but uh, but out of Jerusalem, and the palm branch became the symbol of their n- of really nationalistic pride. And so when, when they're crying, Hosanna, save we pray, and they're celebrating, and they're waving palm branches, and they're actually adding a line that's not in Psalm 119, which is even the king of Israel, they're pronouncing something upon Jesus that they have in view. The crowd believe that Jesus will bring about deliverance again, just like Simon the Maccabee, and just like God through Moses in the Exodus. But this time, not from the Egyptians, but from Roman oppression. Not from the Syrians, but from Roman oppression. They are viewing salvation too narrowly. They're viewing it as nationalistic victory and freedom. The second point I want to make is this. The God of our making is no God at all. The reason I say that is this. See, the same crowd that chants Hosanna shouts crucify him five days later. Why? The same crowd that here are shouting and praising Hosanna days later shout crucify him. Why? Because they found him not to be the God that they wanted. And the beginnings of that, they should actually recognize it in the fact that he rode in on a donkey and not in on a war horse. He rode in on a donkey, symbolizing a gentle, humble, servant king. They wanted a nationalistic warrior king who would drive out the Romans. And when they discovered that Jesus did not come to bring war to the Romans, but peace to the world, their cheers of Hosanna turned to shouts of crucify him. What they're doing here, most of this crowd, are heaping their expectations of who they believe Jesus to be and what he will do onto him. They're projecting their view of what a Savior Messiah is onto him and God doesn't come that way. They were worshiping, not Jesus, they were worshiping their concept of a Savior but not the true Savior. And when he failed to meet their expectations of the way he would come and who he was, they turned on him. And we do this as well. Uh, A a really extensive study was done in in North America by uh, a team of people, and the the summary of it was was brought into a book, I think released in 2006, called Soul Searching. One of the authors was Christian Smith, and he coined the phrase, um, which is really the summary of their findings in the study, and the phrase is this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'm going to explain that, but it was this summary of really spirituality, of the faith that he discovered people to have in North America. It was a, it, in their minds, it was a fair summary of, of faith as they actually saw it, or spirituality as they encountered it, even in the church at large. The authors found that many, there was, there was a study done among young people, but they found that it actually applied to many adults as well, and note that this was also done over a decade ago, and so really many of the, the young people have grown into adulthood as well, so it's broad. The authors find that many young people believed in several moral statutes, not exclusive to any of the major world religions, and that it is this combination of beliefs that they label moralistic therapeutic deism. These sets of beliefs, here's what they are. One, a God who, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is very much the spirituality of North America. And it, 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 it even seeps into the church. But the thing about that is, is that this is not necessarily a Christian faith. These aren't the tenets of the Christian faith, and so um, this is a God of our own making, not a God as he truly comes. So let me break down these these three words in the term, moralistic, therapeutic, and deism. I'll describe them this way. The author says the system is moralistic because it is about instilling a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good and moral person. You want God to love you? Be a good person. Do the right thing. That's the driving force in the moralistic line. The authors describe the system as being about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherent as opposed to being about things like repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice and so on. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, Happy, secure, and at peace. It is about attaining subjective well being, being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people. The deism in moralistic therapeutic deism acknowledges the existence of God, but it places God in a distant role. When God is involved, it's mostly to meet the needs of the individual. This God is not Trinitarian. He does not speak through the Torah, the Old Testament, or the prophets of Israel, was never resurrected from the dead, and does not fill and transform people through his Spirit. This God is not demanding. He actually can't be, since his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. In short, God is something like a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. So there, I've, I've described kind of broadly moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me, uh, I'm going I'm to quote three people who summarize it more briefly. Here's a summary of it, just so you can catch it. Here's one summary of moralistic therapeutic deism. Be good, feel good, live your life. That, 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 that's the faith. of of many. The, the, The next summary is this. God is nice and we are nice, so we should all be nice. The goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, and good people will go to heaven when they die. Another summary of moralistic therapeutic deism is this. Being good makes you a better person, and that makes the man upstairs happy. Here's the thing about moralistic therapeutic deism as discovered and identified as a common essence of faith found in many churches. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Kenda Creasy, in her book Almost Christian, picks up on this term, moralistic therapeutic deism, and says, The problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. She goes on to say that if churches practice moralistic, therapeutic deism in the name of Christianity, then getting teenagers to church more often is not the solution. A more faithful church is the solution. See, moralistic, therapeutic deism actually invades the churches. And if we don't continue to proclaim the gospel as the center, what we're doing is we're simply telling people, look better, be better, God will love you more, He will bless you. Life will go well. And it has nothing to do with surrendering your life to Christ. And yet it's pervasive. And the problem is that the God of our own making is no God at all. He does not come that way, He reveals Himself in the scriptures. He reveals himself most fully in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm really like a one-song worship team up here. Like, I just preach the gospel. You're like, how is he preaching the gospel again in this text too? Because that's all we've got. That's the only song we sing in the church. We will proclaim the gospel over and over and over again. It's been said this way. The gospel is the ladder into the pool of the Christian faith. But you know what you discover as you take the ladder, which is the gospel, into the pool of the Christian faith? Is you discover that the whole pool is the gospel as well. See, the gospel isn't just what saves you and then you move on to just the general Christian life. And I accepted the gospel and I did that and now I'm going about these things. You never leave it. You climb in the pool via the gospel and get into the pool, which is the gospel. And that, my friends, is the Christian life. The gospel is not the ABCs. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. We never move on from it. We'll always sing that song. And the reason is because we're a bunch of forgetful people. We'll think, oh, yeah, I learned that. And then we'll move on to, tell me how to be better again. How do I get this part right in mind? We just keep surrendering our lives to the gospel. We just keep coming back to Jesus we, there's nothing that we accomplish that merits us being good in our own righteousness and being able to attain heaven from it. Jesus was the only one who was truly good and we keep our dependence on him and we get his righteousness and he is deserving of heaven and we, via his righteousness, by being purchased by him, surrendering to him, get all that he alone deserves. It's unmerited favor, it's grace, and we never go beyond it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like I said, talked about costly grace, that it's rich and full. It costs us, but it costs Jesus far more. He also, in the book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, talked about cheap grace, a a cheap kind of grace. And he says, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And my friends, many people in this age under the guise of Christianity are moralistic, therapeutic deists who are not surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. And I just... The, 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 the reforming that can happen in the church is this, that we never move beyond the gospel. We just land there. We stay there. We share that. We preach that to ourselves and we share it with others and we never move beyond. It's always a danger. We think, okay, I've grasped this now. Now I'm going to step out and do me. No, we never leave the need for Jesus. And look, in this naturalistic, relativistic age, meaning naturalistic in the sense of all that exists is what I can see, what I can touch, what I can observe. And relativistic, meaning that it all is relative in the eye of the beholder. Well, it might be that for you, but it's not for me. This is my truth and all that kind of stuff. In this naturalistic, relativistic age, we actually have, not just outside of the church, inside the church as well, we actually have the audacity to believe that God is whoever we think him to be. Well, he's not. God reveals himself to us in his word, and we're called to believe in him as he truly is. Like I said, as revealed through the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus. May we never move from that. It will constantly be tempting. There is a different worldview than the Christian worldview that exists, and it'll try and suck you in. (laughs) Try to suck you into believing that you can mold God like a body pillow right and you can just lean into him however you want and it, and the body pillow of god will, will actually move to the shape of you not the sh- not not you molding to the shape of him but the body pillow f- of god forming to your body as you would like him and it, ah, and that's cozy <laughs> that body pillow of god that i have formed for myself that fits nice that's the temptation but that's not how god comes we we don't have the ability in our own minds to conjure up what God is like, and therefore he is. The word of God describes who he is and calls us to follow. Thirdly, Let's focus in on verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. There's kind of two groups in the crowd. There's the massive crowd that have come to see the spectacle, that have heard rumors of Jesus and the kinds of awesome things that he did. And so they're there. they They want to see Jesus. And then there's some in the crowd as well who witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, who heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life, and then walked over a tomb and raised a dead guy back to life. Like they both heard his words and saw his witness, his work, and they believed it. And so they're kind of interspersed in this crowd. And what are they doing? They're bearing witness about who Jesus really is. See, everybody's putting their projection of who they think this God is, right? This nationalistic warrior king But in the midst of that crowd are those who have genuinely experienced Jesus. And what are they doing? They're bearing witness about him, about his words and his works to others. They want them to know. Those um, in the crowd who were bearing witness would not be suppressed. They wanted others to know about Jesus, and they serve as models for us, for followers of Jesus everywhere that we are to make Jesus known. It's the final point. Disciples make Jesus known. That's what they do. In John 17, a little further in the Gospel of John, Jesus says in a prayer to the Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. I will not stop. I will continue to do it. And then Jesus, what does he do after his resurrection? Right, He, he gives his mission, which was what? Making God's name known to his church. Therefore, what is the mission of the church? To make God known. The church or Christ's body and we are literally the presence of Jesus on earth and our mission is Christ's mission, to proclaim God's name, to make Jesus and the good news known to those around us. Disciples make Jesus known. That's what they do. You follow after Jesus, I follow after Jesus, and part of being his disciple is sharing this good news that happened with others because it's something that's happened that's really, really good. And so we've got to tell somebody. It's like the treasure in the field. I'll give up all, I have found a treasure. It's the same thing when it comes to being disciples of Jesus is we want to tell others about this treasure that they too can have. James Montgomery Boyce is a preacher that I have long admired. He was a 20th century preacher, uh, pastored the same church in Philadelphia for many years, and he writes, when one year the missionary conference of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia was attended by four veteran missionaries, two were a couple who had given more than 30 years of their lives to working in unevangelized fields in Africa. Another, together with her husband, has done pioneer Bible translation work in Mexico. The last had spent over 40 years in Spain. These presented their work at a series of meetings and dinners during the week and then eventually returned to their fields. After they were gone, I received this letter from a woman who had been a member of the church for many years and had attended the conference. So Boyce receives a letter after this conference has taken place from a woman who attended it from his church. She wrote, In 1936, I started attending 10th church well in college and have followed ever since then the work of these three missionaries who had just then left for missionary service. The Wolves have evangelized Kenya in that time. They have trained and sent out workers. They have established churches and Bible schools. Maria Bolet, in that same time, has been training Spanish missionaries in a Bible school and has sent those trained throughout Spain. She has operated summer camps. She has been persecuted several times, been put out of Spain and then allowed to return. Now the children of her earlier converts are attending camps and the mothers are crying out for more camps. In that time, the the Lathrops have reduced a language to writing, have translated the New Testament into that language and have evangelized the entire Tarascan area of Mexico. They have established an indigenous church there. I have pursued my profession at home and overseas and have a few years remaining, a satisfying career. But who will greet me in heaven when I arrive there and say, I am here because you gave your life to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will count me such a blessing? So this woman, after she's heard of the missionary testimonies And the the, the many people affected by their work who, who they will meet in heaven, she's taking stock of that and saying, who will greet me in heaven? And say, because of your faithfulness, because you shared Jesus with me, because you poured out the gospel in your life, I am here. She's asking the question, who will greet me when I arrive in heaven and say that to me? That's an important question. Have you been brought to spiritual life by Jesus? Can others tell that you have been with Jesus? Have any believed in Jesus because of your testimony? I pray that God would grant this to be true of each of us, that we allow God to make it true as we spend more time with him, Look, when I read stories like that, I instantly think this, well, not all of us can and not all of us should go to a foreign mission field. Who would be left to make good money to fund them and all that kind of stuff? Not all of us should, not all of us can go to a foreign mission field, but listen, we all have a mission field. Not all of us can go to a foreign one, but all of us have one. Every disciple of Jesus does. Not all of us can, nor all of us should be in full-time ministry occupation. But ministry is all of our vocations. right? I'm using the term occupation like that's a job. And we can bring Christ into that job. We can live for him there. But our vocation as Christians is our primary mandate for why we exist. We all have the same vocation as his followers, to go about the mission that Jesus went about, making God's name known. That's our vocation, every follower of Jesus. My my, my encouragement this morning to leave you with is this. If you're not doing it already as a follower of Jesus, love people like Jesus and tell people about Jesus. My encouragement to you this morning is this. Love people like Jesus and tell people about Jesus. And every step of the way, ask the Holy Spirit to grow you in it, to meet you there, and to help you with both. I want to conclude our our time here this morning Um, I'm going to invite the band to come on up. The same thing will be happening in Agassiz as well. We're going to invite the band to come up in Agassiz as well, but we want the same thing to happen in the room here. And we're just going to invite you into a response time. Um, I'm going to ask some people to come forward if you would like to come forward. This isn't an altar call to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, though we would love for you to do that this morning as well. If God is prompting your heart, calling you to himself. I would like to do a call this morning, and it's not an altar call because, first, we don't have an altar. Um, what it is, is it's, it's, it's you coming before God. Um, I invite you to come before him and kneel at the front before God. Um, I, I, I invite you to do that specifically for a, a couple of reasons if, if, if you feel prompted to do so. The first reason I would, I would maybe call you to come forward if you would like is because um, you want to confess, Lord, I, I, am, I am a follower of you, but I have not been loving people like Jesus and telling people about Jesus. I, I want to be your disciple and I want to make you known. And I haven't been doing that and I confess that. And Lord, I want that in a, a fresh way to be the mission I'm on with my life. Perhaps you want to come forward um, in the coming moments and, and kneel uh, before God. Um, it's a physical activity that sometimes just more than a third point that you can sit and nod and go, I agree with that. You can actually participate in. Invite you to do that if you would like. The other reason I would maybe call you up at front to do that and just to kneel at the front. Um, before God is because there are people in your life, family or friends or neighbors, so heavy on your heart that you want them to come to Jesus. It's your cry. And so as you're hearing me say these things about, right, living like Jesus, telling people about Jesus, you're just like, this is the cry of my heart. Come forward and just express that to God here this morning. The band will begin to play. And we just want to create a space. So I'm going to get quiet for a minute or two here, and I just invite you to start to come forward. And so um, I'm going to pause. I invite you to do that. I never in a moment here want you to start to feel like, "Uh uh-oh, half the room's going up. Now if I'm at any, any kind of a good Christian, I better start coming. We're not playing that game. We're not doing that. You can sit where you are and do that. Some of you aren't as mobile, let alone be able to kneel, and and I totally respect that. You don't need to move an inch. But I invite you to come if the Spirit is prompting you to come and say, yes, Lord, I want this. I want salvation for people in my life, and I want to come before you and declare it and to ask that you would meet me in that burden. I also want you to come forward if you are saying, this has not been on my radar, and I know that it should. The Lord is piercing my heart. I want to confess that. And I want to leave this place loving people like Jesus and telling people about Jesus. So I want to give you a couple minutes. Come on forward if you'd like, and I'll say a prayer over you. As others others continue to come, and even through the, the closing couple of songs that will follow this, there's that welcome to come, to come before God and declare our desire as disciples. Oh, Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you offer us a treasure beyond imagination so costly that nothing compares and that you offer it to a sinner like me, sinners like us. Oh, Jesus, thank you. And God, I'm just so struck by the fact that this is a part of the Christian walk. I'm so convicted about it, Lord, is that we exist for the reason of making God known making Jesus known, the gospel known. And we confess, Lord, so freely that we oftentimes hide it under a bowl instead of putting it on a stand. That we're embarrassed of the gospel rather than unashamed of the gospel. Of, Lord, that we, we, we get so caught up in our inability that we, 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 we don't recognize your great ability in the Spirit working through us and it, it handcuffs us and keeps us from sharing good news to broken people, Lord. We confess that. And so, Lord, just in a fresh way this morning, we just remind ourselves as a church we exist because we have a message to share. We are a people to gather to encourage in this and then be sent out into the community and to share this news Lord, if the thousand who called Central Home shared it with one who would, by your mercy, believe, this would very quickly be a church of 2,000, and that wouldn't be a thing for us. That would be the building of your kingdom, not ours. But it's just to say, Lord, what if we were to give ourselves to the mission that you call us to, which is to make you known to others? Lord, we ask that you would go with us in that primary mandate as disciples of Jesus. Lord, help us to love people like Jesus, and to tell people about Jesus. And would the Holy Spirit meet us in accomplishing both? We need that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.